this for a while, but if you have your Bible, turn to Romans. We are headed back into Romans for the uh, school year. Uh, we'll be here until next June. We'll see how far along we get. We're at the end of chapter 7 uh, this week, and we'll uh, be spending most of the fall, uh, probably about eight, seven or eight Sundays in chapter 8. So if you haven't started reading chapter 8, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, and then we'll get uh, part of the way through chapter 9, maybe all the way through 9, before we take a break for Advent. But we are back in Romans. Uh, for those of you that have uh, maybe just joined us in the last couple months, uh, and as a bit of a refresher for all of us before we get into this passage this morning, uh, Paul in Romans is addressing the question of the righteousness of God. He, he's helping us understand what it means and how it applies to our lives. Because most of us think righteousness of God, he's way up there, I'm way down here, and you know, we'll never quite come together. He, he's, you know, holy and awesome and, he, you know, doesn't even know who I am. I'm just this little person uh, amongst billions of people on a planet. And what Paul helps us understand is that righteousness, the righteousness of God means that God's justice, you know, that, that part that does set him apart, his holiness, his perfection, his glory, his beauty, uh, that's part of his righteousness. His, his, he is perfectly just, uh, but he is also perfectly merciful. And so the righteousness of God is the coming together of those two things. God's perfect justice. He doesn't turn a blind eye towards our sin. He doesn't pretend like we're okay when we're not. Uh, but his mercy and his justice come together at the cross of Christ. So Jesus lives the perfect life that you and I can't. And then he gives that life as a substitute. And so Jesus experiences the justice of God when he dies on the cross. Jesus went to hell for you and for me. He suffered the rejection of his father while he was on the cross in order that God could then offer that justice as paid so that he could be merciful to us. So that we who deserve the justice of God would actually be recipients of God's mercy. So that's, in a nutshell, the study of Romans. Uh, what Paul has been doing in, in chapter 7 in particular is reminding us that the law is good, that the character of God is without flaw, and that we should embrace the law for what it is, but also remember what it isn't. It isn't a means to salvation. In other words, what Paul says is you, you're not going to earn your way into heaven. This is not about becoming a better person. It's actually about becoming a redeemed person, a person who's been forgiven. And then moving forward, it's about maturing in that faith. It's about growing up as a disciple of Jesus. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning in, in these verses, what Paul talks about, is, is a clearing up a misunderstanding that a lot of people have about what it means to, to grow in Christ. The word I'm going to use is sanctification, which simply means growing up in your faith. Now, the way I thought I would start the sermon out to help you get a good example of, of how we're going to kind of tackle this is I, is I put a, a camera in one of our counseling rooms, and I didn't tell anybody. So if you come into counseling at Green Tree, you might be up on the screen in just a minute. Uh, but I want you to see uh, the astounding and amazing counseling we do at Green Tree that will really help you begin to understand how we approach this question of growing in our faith. So watch the screen. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Uh, I being a very delighted about Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And uh, <laughs> let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, 
I charge five dollars for the for the first five minutes, and and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And, uh, and I, I don't make change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> You ready? Yes. Okay, here, here they are. Stop it! I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> it is. Then stop it. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, 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 no. We, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been, it's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. <laughs> okay, we maybe we don't quite follow that counseling pattern at Green Tree Community Church. That might not be technically accurate. Um, Bob Newhart, a comedic genius, obviously, uh, is on to something there. But uh, one, of the, one of the truths that I saw a friend of mine sent that to me was, as I thought about it, that's kind of how a lot of people live what they think is the Christian life. They, they believe that there's a, a, a calling to not do certain things. And if I could just stop doing those things, stop thinking those things, stop, stop saying those words, stop uh, practicing that behavior 
then I would be a good Christian, right? So just, you know, and I've just tossed out a few here that I thought maybe might uh, be applicable to each one of us. You know, maybe you struggle with having a bad temper or you like to talk about other people in a negative way behind their back or, or greed, overindulgence, lust, sexual sin. These are just some very, very common things that, uh, I, you know, I see uh, those things in my own life. I see them in the lives of other uh, believers. And if we could just stop it and, and we spend a lot of our emotional and spiritual energy trying to control, trying to not do those things. But there's a flip side of it because Christians are very good at taking something that makes absolutely no sense at all and, and making it even more absurd. Uh, what, what we tend to do is not just say stop it, but we also tend to have what I call the Nike uh, theology, which is just do it. So we're not just going to stop doing the bad things, but we're going to take it a step further and we're actually going to now pile onto that a list of things that we're going to do all the time without exception. And again, I've just tossed a few of them up here to kind of get the the juices flowing a little bit. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Praying without ceasing. Always always being in a state of prayer. Uh, Meditating on God's Word. Not just kind of skimming through it, reading it a couple of days a week, a couple of chapters here or there, but actually meditating on God's Word. Loving the people who hate you. Loving, loving your enemies, we're going we're gonna to do that all the time. And then we're going to practice generosity and hospitality with the poor. You remember that Jesus said, you know, don't throw a party and invite the people that can then turn around and invite you to their party. Invite the people that are homeless. Invite the people that don't have uh, any way to repay you. And then you'll be doing the right thing. So we have this list. We have, two, we have a list that says we're not going to do this. And then we have a list that says we're going to follow all these rules. So I got a question for us this morning. How's it going? If that describes your life in, on any level whatsoever, describes my life on any level, how's it working out for you? Are you having great success? Are you, are you waking up each morning filled with joy and anticipation? You can't, get, you can't wait to get into your list for the day? You, you, know, you know that you're just going to avoid all this and you know you're going to do all the right things? My guess is if you're like me that perhaps you've had a few good days. Perhaps you have some moments where, uh, where you've, you've been thoughtful enough and you've been proactive enough that you avoid most of the, of the, of the big ones and, and maybe even embrace doing some good things. But my guess would be, as I look at my own life and, and would encourage you to think along with me, that perhaps you, like I see a lack of consistency in your life and your ability to do that, and your ability to avoid the negative and embrace the positive. In my life, this leads to a frustration. I kind of keep doing this and go, why, after all these years of being a disciple of Jesus, do I still find myself in the exact same spot where I feel like I started? Why am I not making the progress that everybody else around me looks like they're making when it comes to their ability to avoid the bad stuff and do the good stuff? My frustration uh, comes out of my failure to to not do or to, to do the right things which then heaps upon me the shame and the guilt that come with that. You know, if you were a good Christian, this wouldn't be a problem for you. My conscience begins to tell me, and I begin to be even more discouraged, and I find a lack of joy in my life when it comes to my relationship with Christ. And when I do that, what's fascinating to me is I won't stop trying to find joy. I'll just start looking for it in other places. And it's a vicious cycle. And I end up back in the sin pattern, which I thought would maybe give me some joy in the first place, but was actually an empty, hollow promise. But I find myself repeating over and over again. Maybe you, like me, 
would say, you know what, I find that same experience to be somewhat true in my own life. Why is it such a struggle? Well, one of the reasons is that what we've put on the screen here and and what uh, the therapist Bob was suggesting there isn't biblical. (laughs) There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches us that, that our way to a deepening and abiding relationship with God is to not do certain things but to embrace other things. The reason it's not biblical is because it puts confidence and focus on my strength and my ability to accomplish these things. In fact, it becomes, instead of a journey of faith, it becomes a journey of self-improvement. It becomes a journey of trying to avoid the wrong and do the right instead of a process of sanctification, which is actually growing and maturing and deepening in my faith, which by definition is trust in another. If it weren't bad enough that it, that it creates this sense of guilt and shame in our own lives, it also can be deadly to the life of a spiritual family like Green Tree. If we embrace this just stop it and just start doing it type of theology, we end up with a group of self-righteous people who secretly hide their own sins while condemning the sin in others. We become disingenuous and excuse-making, and who wants to live in that kind of community? Well, praise God that Paul calls us on the carpet. That through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he offers to us this morning a stark warning on what it means to look at our lives for what it truly is, to see ourselves for who we are in order to understand what growth in Christ is truly about, which is what chapter 8 is going to cover in great detail. In Romans chapter 7 this morning, in verses 14 through 25, through his own personal confession of his struggles, he's also going to put his finger on a universal truth. What is true in Paul's day about his life and his experience with Christ is true in our day as well. And perhaps it will offer us a different way of looking at the world than just stopping it and just starting doing the right things. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, hear the word of God. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate... Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. No, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find this law, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to worship you with our minds and with our emotions. This passage has much to say to us about the dysfunction of our thinking and our reasoning. 
the assumptions that we have about our own abilities to overcome sin. We have way too much trust in ourselves and way too little trust in you. Father, Paul loved you enough and loved us enough and was inspired by the Holy Spirit so that he would tell us the truth. It isn't necessarily a pretty picture, but it is an honest picture, and it is a very insightful and helpful picture. It is the beginning of our sanctification. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us this morning. I cannot explain this passage to this group of folks. I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would forgive my sin, that you wouldn't let me stand in the way of your truth, and that we would embrace the reality of our lives, the powerlessness in which we live, in order that we might see your power mightily at work in our lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is not the most uplifting, enjoyable passage you've ever read. I've been reading it all week long, and every time I read it, I feel like I'm sinking just a little bit deeper down into the mud because Paul says something that we all know, but none of us really want to admit And he's going to to challenge us to really look at ourselves for who we are in order that we could come to a a very healthy conclusion that would lead us down a different pathway, that would lead us away from this enslavement to kind of trying to change our behavior and rather embrace the truth of who we are in order that Christ can then come and as we'll begin to see next week in chapter 8, do a very different transformative work in our lives. So I want to walk through this passage, and I'm, I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. Actually, we're going to put the, the, the kind of bullet point verses on the screen as we go. So we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit, but hopefully it will, it'll all tie together. Uh, first, Paul's going to talk about what sanctification isn't, uh, where, where, we, uh, where we need to start with kind of the negative. The first is, thing that he observes is that knowledge and insight are not enough. They're not the same thing as sanctification. He says in verse 14, I know that the law is spiritual. Paul's saying, I look at the law, and even though I can't keep it, even though I I, I do some of the things it tells me not to do, and I don't do all the things it tells me I should do, that's not the law's problem. The law is not fundamentally flawed. The law is perfect. And by using the word spiritual, Paul is actually giving us a very brief Old Testament lesson. He's taking us back to Exodus when God appears to Moses on Mount Sinai. And, and, and uh, Paul is very clear, the law is not generated by man. It wasn't that a bunch of guys got around and sat down one day and said, hey, let's figure out what we think all the rules everybody should follow, and let's, let's hand that to everybody. Paul says it's spiritual. It comes from God himself. He goes on to say, uh, in verse 16, he says, I know, therefore, that the law is good. So he's simply reinforcing what he says in verse 14. Uh, a little bit later on in the passage, he says, I even know that evil lies close at hand. So Paul says, I, it's not even that I have the problem of knowing God's law but not really understanding what's wrong. He says, I, I get the whole good and evil thing. I understand that. It's not lost on me. And then he also says this. He says, I delight in the law of God. In other words, my emotional being, when I, when I sit down and I read the scriptures and I see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God, I delight in those things. But Paul has come to the conclusion that that knowledge and that insight is not enough to kind of get him over the hump to the point where he's always faithfully following God. You've probably had this experience as a child 
Uh, and maybe if you're a parent, you've had this experience with a little one where they've done something they knew they weren't supposed to do, right? So maybe you looked out the kitchen window and you saw little Johnny or little Susie, and maybe they're four years old, and they know not to cross the street by themselves. That's just something you've taught them, you know, because you don't want them to get hit by a car. You want them to be safe. And so you say, you know, you stay on our side of the street unless mom or dad are holding your hand. You don't cross the street. And you look, and there's little Johnny playing in the neighbor's yard, <laughs> And it's not like the neighbor walked him over there. He's there by himself having a grand old time. He, he knew what to do and he didn't do it. So you bring Johnny and you say, Johnny, we got to talk. And, and maybe even more than talk. We're going to have a little correction here. You know, you know that you're not supposed to cross the street, right? And any parent or child that's had this experience, what happens? The child does what? Sure. They're not going to deny it. They're caught. <laughs> you know, and they're, yeah, I, yeah. My, you know that we've said not to cross the street without us, right? Yes. Then why did you cross the street? And everybody knows exactly what's going to come next, right? I don't know. <laughs> I can't figure it out. I'm not sure why I did that, right? I don't know. I knew the law, wasn't confused, couldn't keep it. But God looks at my life. He says, Tom, you know that I call you to be a generous, giving person. Why is it that you're selfish? I'm like, I don't know. I, I get the generosity part. I, I, I'm not confused. Lord, I don't know. Tom, I, I've told you, you have, to have pure thoughts and, and, and to be a person that doesn't speak negatively about other people behind their back, and yet I see the, you know, the thoughts that are real in your heart, and I, I hear the words that come out of your mouth. What part of that didn't you understand? And I'm like, I, I understood all of it. I don't know why I did it. Paul is describing the, the inability that we have to just have knowledge and insight be enough. But he also says, not only are knowledge and insight, they, they don't equal sanctification. Drive and desire, desire and drive also are not enough. Uh, Paul says in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. Now he goes on a little bit later in verse 21, and he says, I want to do what is right. My, my, my heart, my energy, my focus, it's there. I get it. I want to do it. But for some reason, somewhere between that desire and the actual actions of my life, Something happens and there's a break, and I don't quite carry it out. Now, the logical question for this, because anybody that's sitting in this room reading these, these scriptures and listening to this carefully, as a disciple of Jesus, we look at this and we go, that, that's true. <laughs> I do delight in God's law. I, I know that the law is spiritual. I know those things are good. I do have a desire to do what is right. Yeah, Paul, I'm with you. I, I don't always carry it out. Why is that? What's underneath the surface that perhaps we have forgotten or perhaps we haven't considered before? Why isn't knowledge and insight and desire and drive the pathway of sanctification, the pathway of growing up and maturing in our faith? Well, it's because, again, it focuses on ourselves, but it ignores the unrelenting power of sin in our lives. Paul says in verse 14, and I'm just going to shoot through these so you can just go ahead and, and toss them up there. Paul says in verse 14, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. He says, I do the very thing that I hate to do. In verse 18, he says, I don't even have the ability to do what is right. Verse 19, I keep on doing the evil I do not want to do. And then finally, verse 23, I made a captive to the law of sin. Notice the bookends that Paul has in this passage are talking in terms of slavery. And if you saw someone in the Roman Empire in Paul's day who was a slave, they would be very distinctly marked as a slave. You would know who they were. And Paul says, I'm not even my own master. I cannot control my emotions and my thoughts and my words to carry this out. 
the stuff that I hate to do, I, it's almost like I step out of myself and I see myself doing it. Friends, we, we need to understand that when we come to Christ for salvation, the effects of sin and the power of sin don't cease to exist. We now have a new power within us, which we're going to get to starting in chapter 8. We now have the opportunity to follow Christ, and we'll come to that. But for this morning, we need to understand that, that when you come to Christ for salvation, your sin nature is not gone in its effect on your life. It, it does not control your eternal destiny, but it dies a very slow and painful death. In Galatians chapter 5, which I'm not going to put on the screen, Paul says this, the reason we don't do what we want to do is because the flesh, my sin, battles against the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's doing battle with the flesh. And he uses terminology there that is gladiatorial. He's saying they're fighting to the death. So maybe nobody's told you this before, but Scripture is clear that sin gets its hooks in and it wants to hold on for all it's worth. And there are times when you go, I can't believe I did that again. You ought to say, you know what? I do believe I did that again because sin is not yet let go. And the idea that I can overcome my sin in my own power is an absurd thought. I don't know any other way to say it. If you're, if you're history buff, I'll give you a history example and a sports example. If you're a history buff, you know that, that when the Germans invaded Poland, that they rolled in with tanks, and the Poles came against them with a cavalry. They had no, the, the battle was over before it ever began. One army was fighting in the 20th century, and one army was fighting the way they had fought in the 4th century. <laughs> it was a foregone conclusion where that battle was going. I'll give you a sports example. It would be like the New York Yankees coming to town, and instead of playing the St. Louis Cardinals, they go down to Merrimack Community College, and they play the, they play the junior college team <laughs> in a series of, of, of 10 games. The Yankees are going to win every game, and they're going to win it by multiple runs. It isn't even a contest. And what Paul says, friends... It's not even a contest. Paul, who, if you want to argue who's the best Christian that ever lived, Paul wins the argument, hands down. And he says, I look at what I do, and I hate it because I can't master it in my own power. I know the good stuff, I don't. I know the bad stuff, and I do. The reason that knowledge and desire alone are not the pathway is because they don't take into account the unrelenting power of sin that even held the apostle Paul captive. Now, how do we react to this? And when I say we, I don't just mean Green Tree Community Church and you and I and the folks who were in the first service. I I mean kind of Christianity in general. What's the reaction to this? And I want to give you some responses that I think are not very good uh, but are out there. One of them is that that some folks would say, well, Paul's describing himself and therefore anybody else who's a Christian before he... Uh, salvation. This is, this is how Paul felt before he was a Christian. Now, I would, I would say that anybody that, that argues that is not a very careful student of mankind. I know lots and lots of, of, of folks that do not believe in Jesus one whit. They have no use for him at all. And the last thing that they wake up in the morning or go to bed at night thinking is, what a wretched man I am. I can't do the right stuff. Most of my unbelieving friends think they're pretty good folks. They admit they have some flaws, but the thought has not dawned on them. That, that their actions are separating from them, from God. It's the disciples I know, it's the, it's, it's the people I know who claim to follow Christ and myself who wrestle so mightily with this because we see the conflict because the Spirit of God is working in our lives. 
So this is not pre-conversion. The second reaction that some folks have is this. Paul's kind of talking metaphorically. He's not really talking about himself. It's kind of a straw man, so to think. That might be a good term to use here. This is the disobedient disciple who who simply needs greater conviction uh, and fortitude. They just need to, to press on a little bit harder. But Paul's not really talking about himself. He's talking about what... Uh, the term you may have heard if you've been in the church a while, carnal Christian. Somebody who has more worldly than, than uh, is, is actually you know, thinking about themselves. The problem with that is the language simply doesn't allow for it. Paul talks in the first person singular, and he owns it for himself. You cannot find that kind of metaphorical writing in any of Paul's other works much less in Romans. So what we're saying is that Paul is coming to one of the greatest truths in the Christian faith, and he decides to use a writing style that he's never used before and never used after. It simply won't work according to the text. Paul's not talking about somebody out there. He's talking about himself. Um, I, I brought a little, a little um, uh, item to show you this morning. This is my stapler that comes off my desk, and it's, it's a brand-new stapler. And I just got it last week. And I'm really excited about it because my other stapler somehow, I don't know how, disappeared. Now, remember, I work in a church office with really, really, really good spiritual Christian people, right, who always do the right things. And some of my staff are now, they're looking at each other going, did you take a stapler? Did you take a stapler? So what Jenny, my sister, did is she wrote on the back of this, Tom's stapler, okay? Now, you could peel it off so you could still get away with the crime, but at least this would hopefully prick your conscience if you walk off with my stapler. I work in a church office, and my stapler isn't safe. I have a little box on my, on my desk. It's about that big. It's a little clay thing that Katie made when she was, like, in seventh grade, and I put all my change in it all year. I don't, do we have any other? Mostly dads do this kind of stuff. So I've got, like, quarters and dimes, and, you know, at the end of the year, you go over to Schnucks, and you dump in that really cool counting machine, and, you know, I got, like, $42. I mean, it's like a tank of gas, and it's kind of fun. So, but I save it all year long. It's got to get full, and it, it takes about a year to fill it up, right? So about three months ago, I walk in my office, and I've got, like, I don't know, 62 cents or something in my pocket, and I open the lid up to drop it in, and I, it's all pennies. All my silver's gone, all my quarters and my dimes and my nickels, and I'm standing there, and I'm like, I'm like shaking, and, I, and I'm like, you know, starting to, to think I'm going to faint. What happened to all my money? And I look around, and my sister's standing behind me. She's got a real big smile on her face, and she goes, your wife was in here just a little while ago with a bag of pennies. I'm married to a very evil, evil person. <laughs> Who does that to a guy? Who steals a guy's quarters and dimes and nickels? While I'm on the topic of confessing other people's sins, uh, staff, <laughs> if you happen to have left a piece of pizza and tinfoil in the refrigerator on Friday, Lauren, was that your? It's, it's gone. I ate it yesterday. You guys go to a church where a pastor steals food. The reaction that this is a metaphorical figure out there somewhere is nuts. Paul's talking about us. The third reaction that, that some folks have is that Paul's talking about a one-time occurrence that, that passes as, as we get stronger. This is who Paul is when he was a little baby Christian, but now that he's getting stronger, again, notice how it focuses on, on our strength and our ability. Now that he's getting stronger, this won't happen anymore. So if this is still happening to you and you've been a believer for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years, you should feel terribly guilty right now because you should have moved on past this, right? Ray Steadman has written a great book called From Guilt to Glory. Let me just read a little quote from, uh, from uh, Ray's perspective. There are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is a thing that Christians go through but once. They then, they, they then get out of it and move on to chapter 8, never to return to chapter 7 again. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through it again and again. 
This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience because sin has the power to deceive us and to cause us to trust in ourselves even when we are not aware we are doing so. This unrelenting power of sin cannot be downplayed, cannot be passed by quickly. And for those who would say, you know, you'll grow out of that, I would argue that Paul says exactly the opposite. I think Paul is actually more aware of his sin in Romans than he probably was when he wrote Galatians because he wrote Romans probably 15 years after he wrote the book of Galatians. So these reactions, I would argue, are not biblically sound reactions, but we may be tempted to think this way. What would be a better response? Where does this maturing in Christ, where does the sanctification begin on a daily basis? Well, first of all, we just need to simply remember that Paul is speaking of himself and every believer between the moment of salvation and and our physical death. You will continue to sin and I will continue to sin until the day we die. Now, that's not where we want to be. And we long to move past that. But the way we begin to, to grow in our faith is not by simply trying harder. And so in one sense, I want to give some of you permission to cut yourself a little bit of slack. I think maybe you have too high of an opinion of your ability to conquer sin apart from the power of God's Holy Spirit and God's Word. And we need to understand that foundationally speaking, the power does not reside within us. Sin will continue to try and fight until the very, very end. Secondly, if that's true, then I think we need to abandon self-confidence. We need to turn our back on the notion that we can do it if we just work a little harder, if we just focus a little bit better, if we just give it a little more of our attention. And I would say embrace despair. Now, by despair, I don't mean depression. By despair, I simply mean that I am not going to trust in myself. I'm going to turn my back on that option. I'm going to despair of the idea that I can pull myself up by my own spiritual bootstraps based on verse 24 where Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Paul looks away from himself after he looks into himself and he understands that he cannot change this on his own power, which means Paul concludes this, and I think this is the right biblical way to think about it. I must look for a solution apart from my own strength. I must look for a solution apart from my own strength. I'm going to read a quote for you. I'm actually going to put it on the screen so you can follow along by James Edwards, who has written, I think, masterfully of this particular passage. And he says, when one discovers that not only a power uh, at work within oneself against one's best desires but also a powerlessness to combat it, then one must look for help beyond oneself. Paul is not in the market for a self-help program. He is not hoping for a lucky break or turning over a new leaf. He is a drowning man crying out for rescue. The word for wretched means that the situation is critical and beyond his power to change it. If salvation is to come, it must come from a who and not a what. It must come from the outside and apart from his own resources, or it will not come. Friends, the best response is a response that joins the Apostle Paul in this thinking and in this truth. It says, there is a power within me that I cannot control. I am a wretch. I cannot save myself. I cannot sanctify myself. But look at how Paul ends the passage in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am. 
And he reminds us that upon salvation, sin does not simply fade away. Sanctification is not trying harder. It is a life abiding in a power found somewhere besides ourselves. And that's why he goes on in chapter or in verse 25, say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is why he moves into chapter 8, and he begins to unpack what that means. Chapter 8 is all about how we grow in Christ, how we apply this truth, how we turn our backs from our own power, and we embrace the fact that Jesus is the one who saves, and Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We'll spend more time in chapter 8 of Romans than probably any other chapter in Romans, save maybe chapter 12. We're going to be in chapter 8 for at least seven weeks. Why? Because we've got to see how he debunks the notion that we, that we sanctify ourselves by our own power and see how we embrace the power of Jesus. So while Bob Newhart's sketch was funny, that was great. Stop it. <laughs> Don't apply that to your life and your walk with Christ. A lot of us are, are overwhelmed and burdened with the just do it faith. Perhaps this morning for the first time, or perhaps it's simply just a reminder again of how important it is for us to simply begin with an honest acknowledgement of our powerlessness against sin and a renewed trust in the powerful Savior, Jesus. Will you pray with me?